This year, our theme is living an abundant life. Our key verse is John chapter 10 and verse 10, where Jesus said, I am come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. Uh, Eternal life is what Jesus came to give us. His death on the cross that we remembered a few moments ago provided that. But in this verse and elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that God is also interested in Christians having an abundant life here on earth now, uh, full of love and joy and peace, a rich, full, overflowing, abundant life. And that's what we've been talking about this year. Jesus says here, he came that we might have that. That's his purpose for coming. That's his plan for his children. First part of that verse talks about the thief that doesn't want us to have that, that takes away uh, the good life, the abundant life, the eternal life. The thief steals and destroys and kills, and Jesus wants us to have an abundant life. So that's our, our principle that we're working on this year. We're using a picture of a wheat field to uh, help us have a mental reminder of abundant harvest. And the reason we're doing that is because uh, there's some similarities there. A farmer can have an abundant harvest with God's help uh, if he does certain things. If he clears the field of the weeds and bugs and thorns and thistles and other problems, then plants the right seeds, then waters and fertilizes it properly, then God will give him the harvest. Similarly, uh, we have some work to do to claim God's promise of an abundant life. Uh, We've cleared the field. We spent a series on that. Uh, At least we covered six major life problems, uh, life-stealing problems. Uh, that need to be hacked out of our life. Uh, We need to clear our field of of problems in this life that we've talked about six particular ones. And now we're ready. Uh, In this series, we're planting some seeds. We're working on planting the right seeds that will lead to an abundant life. Now, these may not be the seeds that you would expect if you're you're visiting with us. We're assuming uh, that I'm talking to Christians. I'm talking to Christians uh, that you have faith, that you understand the Word of God, that you pray, that you read your Bible, uh, all those things that you might think are seeds that we need to plant in our life. Uh, I'm assuming that you're doing those things. But if you're doing those things and not living an abundant life, which I believe there are some folks like that, uh, something's wrong. And so that's what we're working on. That's where we started this year, in fact, if you remember. Uh, our very first lesson of the year was It's all in your head, Uh, how we think about things, how we view things, what we set as our priorities uh, makes a huge difference in this life. It determines our lifestyle uh, with God's help. And so our seeds that we're planting are really firm convictions. Uh, They're foundational beliefs that have got to guide our way of thinking, our way of walking, our way of living got to guide our whole life. So the four seeds that I picked, uh, the four seeds are I am, he is, I will, and he will. Uh, Last week we worked on the first one. We established that I am a child of the king. We talked about what it means to be a child of the king. I hope you woke up every morning this week uh, with that thought, uh, either in your heart or on your lips, possibly. I am a child of the king. 
Uh, if you did that, it affected the way you lived this week. Uh, I, I'm blessed. I'm chosen. I'm adopted. I'm redeemed. I'm forgiven. Uh, all of those things are involved in us being a child of the king. Uh, we've got to know that. We've got to understand that. We've got to live like that. And that's what we talked about last week, is the importance of knowing who we are. Now, just like we have to know who we are, the second seed is about we've got to know who he is. Our view of God is all important. How we view God is all important. Proverbs 9 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The majesty of God causes us to tremble. We sing about that sometimes, don't we? Uh, When we're in his presence, when we think about what an awesome God he is, of, of his power and might and wrath and all the attributes of God, when we think about that, we, we tend to tremble in one sense. But the, the wise man here in Proverbs is not talking about the kind of fear that you just quake in your boots, uh, terrified at all times. That's not what he's talking about. What, what he means here is an awesome respect. A respect for who God is. A serious understanding of who he is. Now, some folks do view God as an angry tyrant. That's the way they see God up there. Uh, They live in fear. They try to get every rule and regulation just right because they think he's up there throwing thunderbolts at them to terrorize them. Let me tell you a secret. Those folks don't live an abundant life. Now, that's not the view of God that causes people to live an abundant life. Some folks go the other direction and think of God as kind of a kindly old grandfather that he just wants us to be happy. You know, whatever I want to do, if that makes me happy, well, I know he likes that. There are people that talk like that these days. And people that think like that about God tend to be pretty self-centered. They tend to live a sinful life because... That's their reasoning. That's the wisdom of man, not the wisdom of God. Our view of God is very, very important. Now, Thomas, in that passage that was just read for you, Thomas came to a different view of God. He fell on his knees after Jesus sewed him the hole in his side and his hands, and he said, my Lord and my God. And that's a good view of God. To understand that he is Lord. He has the right to direct us as the child of the king. He's the Lord. He gets to tell us what to do. And we ought to think that way about this word. Our Lord said it. That's what I'm going to do. That's a good view of God. And I considered spending part of our time or all of our time on that. But I decided to go another direction. Because I want to make sure we're not just getting a theological picture of God. I don't want us to have just a theological view of God. I want us to have a very practical view. Now, when I say theological and practical, uh, what I'm saying is I know that we've got to know and comprehend uh, like the omnis. You know, we've got to know he's omnipresent. We've got to know he's omnipotent. We've got to know he's omniscient. He knows everything. He is every place. He is all-powerful. 
Uh, we've got to understand all that and deal with that. But how we view God daily, how we go around and about our work and think about him, uh, yeah, we know that, and that affects how we behave and everything else, but we really don't go around repeating those kind of things, theological principles. He's an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. He is, but day to day, hour by hour, that's the kind of view that I want to talk about today. The Jews kind of stayed up on that level. They feared God. They talked a lot about him being omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent and all the other things. Uh, They feared him during Old Testament time. They feared him so much they wouldn't say his name out loud. They feared him so much that they kept adding rules to make sure they didn't step over the line on some rule. So they just kept tightening up the rules and adding more and more. And finally, when Jesus got here, said, you guys have made it where it's a burden that nobody can bear. You know, they did that out of their view of God that they, they feared him. And so they worked on the rules, they worked on their behavior, they tried to get every little thing right. I'll tell you one reason they killed Jesus is because he didn't live like that. And he didn't teach like that. Jesus lived differently and he taught differently than the religious leaders of the day. Jesus taught a new concept. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus told the folks, he said, When you pray, pray to your father. Your father knows what you need. Now, the Jews, old Jews called him father. That was a term for him, but they didn't think of him that way. They thought of God on Sinai. They thought of God closing up the Red Sea. They they thought of that kind of God, I think. And Jesus said, when you pray to God... You pray to your father. And your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, now hold that thought about speaking to a father and get the other part of the picture here. Now, the, the elite of the Jewish religion, the, the big shots, the, the public guys, the scholars, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those kind of guys that you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those fellows knew every scripture so they had it down pat. That's what they sat around talking about all the time. It was what this scripture mean and what's that one mean and how's this one relate to that one. They kept every little rule, every little rule. They were the oldest guys. They were the smartest guys. They were the most educated. They were the best behaved in public. They were something to behold. They even dressed religious. You could tell them when they walked down the street. That was the elite, was the old guys that did everything right and knew everything. If you understand that, you can see how strange this sounded when Jesus did this one day. He shocked his followers one day when he got some children around him. He got some little children together around him, and he said, unless you guys change and become like little children, you'll never get in the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a new concept. That is a different way of thinking about God, isn't it? When you understand what he was dealing with, 
who the elite were in the religious world and all that. And he says, you guys got to get like little children. Now, let's put this all together. Uh, in our thoughts, in our relationship with God, in our view of God, try to understand this. And some of you won't like this too much, but it's true. You won't like it because some of us get too much Pharisee in us. But this is true. In our relationship with God, the way we think about him, the way we deal with him, I am not an adult that behaves perfectly enough so that I never offend the one whose name cannot be spoken. I'm not like that in my relationship with God, Jesus says. What I am is a little kid with a loving father. That's a whole different picture. A whole different picture from being a grown-up, educated, understanding everything, behaving perfectly, afraid of the one. And a little kid with a loving father. Two completely different pictures. My premise this morning is that to have an abundant life, we've got to understand that I'm a child of the king and he's my father. The second seed that we must plant is just that. He is my father. I'm a child of the king. He's my father. Now, I realize some of you are tuning out on me right now. Because some of you don't want to go there. I realize there's a danger here. That's why this is so hard to talk about. There is a danger here. And the danger is that I don't know what you think when I tell you to think about your father. My guess is that there's no one in this room that had a perfect earthly father. Some of you got pretty close, but nobody had the perfect one. Some of you, let's say one-third of you, just for numbers, let's say one-third of you had a great dad. Absolutely wonderful father, absolutely wonderful memories. All you have to remember about him is how good he was. There's a third of you like that, maybe. There's also a third of you that when I ask you to think about your father, there's some good things that come into your mind, and then there's some bad things. Well, there's a lot of good things, but there was some unfairness, perhaps, that you felt of being raised up. Uh, there were some wrongs done, perhaps. There was some mistreatment somehow. It's kind of a mixed bag there. That's the way you think about your father. And there's a third of you or thereabouts that can think of nothing good about their father. Maybe he deserted you. Maybe he abused you. Maybe he tormented you somehow. So, so that's the danger of trying to talk about God being a father. In fact, if that's true... If a third had great fathers and third had bad fathers and third had kind of so-so fathers, why would God choose to reveal himself as a father? Ever wonder about that? I mean, this is a biggie. This is what Jesus taught. This is what we're going to talk about this morning. This is Jesus, how, how Jesus wanted us to think about God. Why would he pick that? And it occurred to me, maybe he did that, just maybe, because the ones with a great father will make the connection. The ones with a great father will understand what he's trying to tell us. And the ones without the experience of a great father need one. 
They need a great father. And God says, that's who I am. That's how I want you to think about me. Whether you had a great dad or not, I want you to think about me as you being my child and I'm your father. So I understand there's a danger. And in fact, you may want to change the phrasing here somewhat. Uh, You may want to change my phrasing from he is my father to if you want to change it to he is my perfect father. Uh, He is a perfect father. And since none of us had a perfect one, you can put that in there if you want to. Now your next question is, what's a perfect father? If none of us have seen one, what is a perfect father? Well, we could work a long time on that. I teach a weekend seminar sometimes about the seven secrets of fathering. So I could give you seven real easy. Uh, But then I could keep going. I could give you 70 times seven uh, describing a great father. I just picked four, though. Uh, I just picked four that I think are most helpful in our practical walk as we try to understand this, plant this seed in our mind. First point, number one, he is my provider. A good father has got to provide for his family. Some of you really understand that. Some of you young people may treat your father like an ATM machine. You know, you just come up, give me, give me, give me, give me, uh, just keep handing it out. Well, that's a wrong concept of God. But he is a provider. In fact, that's one of his names. That's the way he revealed himself sometimes. Genesis chapter 22, you go read that story about Abraham and Isaac. Abraham told to sacrifice his son Isaac. He trusts God so much. His understanding of God is he's a provider. He'll take care of things. I don't know why he wants me to do this. And on the way, Isaac asks. Isaac says, Dad, we got the wood, we got the fire, we got everything we need, but where's the lamb? What did Abraham say? God will provide. Jehovah will provide that. And they got up to the mountain and they built the altar and he laid Isaac on it and he got everything ready to go and he raised the knife and God said, hold it a minute. And over in the bushes was a ram provided for the sacrifice and Abraham named the place Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah will provide. He is a provider, and he provides everything. That's what we've got to understand. In Matthew 6, 20, 32, 632, Jesus said, before you ask, he knows that you need them. Whatever you've got in your mind that you need, before you even ask, he knows that you need them. So he will provide what you need. Everything you need. But it gets better than that. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 9, Jesus tells us this little story. He's trying to impress the people how God's like a father. And he says in verse 9, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? See what He's saying? Earthly fathers give good gifts. Well, how much more is the heavenly Father going to give good gifts? So He gives us everything we need, and He gives every good gift to us. Now, keep going back to this little children picture. And that's why I put up pictures of Jesus with little children, is I want you to start thinking of God that way. 
Those of you that have little children, or those of you who can remember when your children were little, when they came and asked for something, whether it was something they needed, or whether it was just a good gift, did they worry about whether you could afford it? Did they worry about where you were going to get the money? I'm talking about little children now. We, we train them to think about that eventually, but little kids don't care. They don't understand that dad's got it. Dad can provide anything. If I want this or need this, I'll tell him about it. Now, second question, does a good father always give them everything they ask for? No. No, not a good father. A good father is good to them, but he's also good for them. Sometimes sometimes he says, no, you can't have that. You don't need that. That's not good for you. Uh, He makes those decisions. And children learn to understand that. God gives us everything we need. He gives us every good gift. There's a difference there, you know, between needs and good gifts. You realize how many things you have that you didn't need? Did you need God to make the male cardinal that color of red? Did you need him to make sunrises and sunsets like they are? No, you didn't need that. God could have made everything in shades of gray. He could have made you see everything in shades of gray. But he didn't. He just gave you some good gifts. That's the way God is. He gives us everything we need. He gives us everything that's a good gift. Now we've got to make sure we complete the picture. We can't leave this out. In Hebrews 12, 7, it's a little different picture here, but it's all part of providing. Hebrews 12 and verse 7, Paul say, or the writer of Hebrews says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined... Everyone undergoes discipline, then you're illegitimate children. You're not true sons. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? See the picture? He provides everything we need. He provides all our good gifts. He provides discipline when we need it. That's a picture that we have to understand. It's a The writer here says it's a sign of sonship. You're really a child of the king when you have a little bit of this discipline in your life. You're true sons. Why? Well, it's for the purpose of growing you up. It's for your good, like we just talked about. His illustration is that we all had fathers who disciplined us. And I know some of you are young enough right now, you're not seeing that that's a good thing. But later in life, you'll talk about that. Older people, tell me that. My father was pretty strict on this, and boy, I'm glad he was. He made me what I am today. This was good for me. He taught me what I needed to know. See, sometimes when we say discipline, we always think immediately of punishment. Not always for punishment. Sometimes it's for prevention. Sometimes it's for education. Think about Paul. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. You remember that? Was God punishing Paul? No, Paul said it wasn't for punishment. What did Paul say? He said it was to prevent me from becoming prideful. 
God disciplined him to prevent him from getting in something that was worse. Sometimes, you parents know this, sometimes a little hardship is required to get us to listen. Sometimes we don't pay attention unless things get a little tough. Well, God says he disciplines us. Now, that's a perfect father. He provides everything we need, all the good gifts and the discipline when we need it. Number two, he is my protector. We know this in the earthly world. Sometimes a a dad is the only one who can make sure there's no monsters in the closet. Nobody else can handle that. Dads are the ones that can handle that problem. Uh, Sometimes the first time going off the diving board into the deep part of the pool, only dad can be trusted to catch me. That's just the way it is in this world sometimes. Kid, little kids, I guess they still say, they used to say, my dad can beat your dad. I don't know, the, the feminization of America, they may be saying my mom can beat your mom. I don't know. But it used to be my dad can beat your dad. He's my protector, and that's what the Bible tries to tell us. John seventeen eleven. what did Jesus pray for? Jesus said, Holy Father, protect them. That's us, by the power of your name. He was talking about leaving us in the world, and he said, while they're there, you protect them by the power of your name. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, one of the greatest promises in the Bible, says that God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. You talk about protection, that's pretty good protection. You going to be tempted this week? Yes. Satan after you? Yes. Is God watching him and saying, you cannot go beyond this? Yes. He's your protector. Jude 24 is an excellent verse. It says, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious present without fault and with great joy. God is able to keep us from falling. He's our protector. It's a great picture of a father. Number three, he is a personal Father, not just a provider and a protector, but a personal father. Some dads, earthly dad, thinks their job description has just one word, provider. That's where they stop. They think, as long as I bring the paycheck home, then I've done my job. No, your job description's a lot, a lot longer than that. You've got to be a personal father. I told you about seminar that I teach about secrets of effective fathering. One thing I do in that class every time is ask the men that are in the class, and these are grown men, I ask them, write down on a piece of paper one great thing that your father did with you. One great thing that your father did for you. I don't know how many hundreds I've gotten over the years of those, but they're all the same. They're all the same. I never find anybody, nobody has ever written that he sent me on this great vacation or he took me to Disney World or he spent millions of dollars on this or that. They're always about personal time. That's what they're always about. He took me to work with him on Saturdays. He let me work on the car with him. He went fishing with just me and him. That's what they all are. All variations on the same theme. But they're always, and these are grown men that are remembering when they were little kids, they're always about personal relationship, about personal time. God is a present 
father. I mean, a personal father. Excuse me, I jumped ahead there. That's what kids remember. Matthew 10 and verse 30 tells us how personal he is. It says, even the very hairs of your head are numbered. He knows everything about you. He, he's that close to you. Jeremiah chapter 1, 5, he told Jeremiah, and he knows it about us too. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. He's a personal father. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, Paul told the Romans, he said, you received a spirit of sonship. You're a child of the king. You got that spirit of sonship, and by him, by the spirit, we can cry, Abba, Father. We don't use that word. It's a very special word in Aramaic terms. It was a, actually, it was more like a personal name. It kind of a term of endearment instead of just father. It was Abba, father. It was a very close relationship it showed. Today we might translate it as daddy or papa or something like that. That only a son is allowed to call his father. Slaves were forbidden to use this word. If you were a slave in a household, when the head of the household came by, you couldn't use this word. Only the children of the head of the household. Uh, we understand this term, don't we? We understand how that works. People call me all week. They call the church and I get some of the calls. Uh, they call and ask for help. They just need a little money for gas or they just need a little this to pay their electric bill or they just need a little something for this. I'm not very helpful. I'm not too concerned. I don't know them. There's some people in this congregation that I'm pretty close to. Some, some of you young people, if you came up tonight and said, we're going out for pizza and I don't have any money and mom and dad aren't here, I'd give you the money. But there's two people in this world that can call any time about anything and say, Dad, I need this. Dad, what about this? Dad, here's the problem. Okay. Only two people can use that term and talk to me that way about those kind of things. Okay. And, and Paul said, we got that spirit of sonship. When we pray, when we think about God, we get to say, Abba, Father. We're that close to him. He's that personal to us. Number four, he is a present father. The greatest problem in America in my opinion, is absentee dads. we got a lot of other problems, but that's where it all started. And absentee moms don't help any either, but absentee dads is the biggie. Okay. Dads that either are not there physically or they're not there emotionally for their kids, and it fouls up families. In any home, uh, there is greater security for the children when the dad is there. When he's regularly there, when he's consistently there, when he's reliably there, when you can count on him to be there. And so that makes it pretty neat when the Bible tells us things like it does in Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Ever-present help in trouble. Hebrews 4.16, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence 
You can go in and talk to him anytime, anytime, confidently. Hebrews 13, 5, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. It's a promise from our Father God. Now, plant this seed well. Plant this seed well. I'm a child of the king, and he is my father. Remember what we said last week. There's a difference between knowing it. There's a difference between understanding it and living it. If you act as if he's your father, talk to him that way. Don't don't talk to him like God on Sinai. Talk to him like your father. There's a big difference between knowing God as high and exalted with seraphim around him crying, holy, holy, holy. And that's a picture of God that we need to understand. But there's a difference between that and knowing that any time, any place, I can say, Abba, Father, I'm your child, and here's what's going on. Remember what Jesus came for? That we might have eternal life. It's what he came for. It's attainable. It's up to us to work the plan that he tells. The Holy Spirit is ready to help us, ready to pour out his blessings. We've got to put into practice what we learn. So this week, live like you're a child of the king and live like he is your father. We have two of the seeds planted, uh, half of the seeds planted now. I am a child of the king and he's my father. Next, we're going to see about what we do about this stuff. Our next two are I will and he will. What do I do about it and how will he respond? Let me close with this story. It's a fairy tale, really, once upon a time kind of story. Once upon a time, there was a three-year-old girl who had a wonderful father, she thought. She knew. He had a soft and gentle voice. He was the most loving and kindest man in the whole world in her eyes. She loved it when he held her in her arms, in his arms, when she, he cradled her the way that he did. But in the eyes of the world... He was very scary. He was a great warrior. He was seven feet tall, had huge muscles. The country adored him as their greatest warrior. But the enemy countries hated him. The enemy countries wanted to get rid of him. One day they came up with a plan, his enemies did, that if they could go to his house when he was away and take his daughter captive, then they could get rid of him finally. So they did. They slipped to his house. He was away, and just as they got into her bedroom, the father showed up. He charged into the room with his broad sword flashing, made a bloodbath of those five enemies, killed them all. During all of this slaughter, the three-year-old girl was cowering over in the corner. She'd never seen her father like this. She didn't like it. He didn't either. When the slaughter was finally over, he walked toward her. He opened his arms to her. She slunk back into the corner. So he spoke to her. He said, come here, my girl. I didn't want to do that. They were going to hurt you. And I had to save you. He held his arms out and she ran into them. And even though he was spattered with blood... She realized that he was the same wonderful, loving father that she had always known and loved. 
Whenever we see God's wrath crashing down, it's a scary thing. It's a scary sight to see God's wrath. When he strikes people with boils and pestilence and closes the Red Sea up on armies and opens the earth up under people. When he hardens a man's heart, it's a frightening thing. It's even scarier to see the wrath of God come down on his only son on the cross. See the blood flowing from his hands and his side. It's even scarier to see his only son cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But after that terrible ordeal is over, Jesus appears. Jesus appears and he shows us his hands. And he says, come here, my child. He said, I did this for you. It was necessary to save you. God encourages us to know that we have a loving father. That's what he wants us to know. If you need to publicly respond to his love today in any way, won't you come while we stand and sing?